0: Welcome back to the Powell Butte Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at Powell Butte Christian Church in beautiful central Oregon. Looking out my window today, it is just an absolute clear day. We have a few clouds in the sky, but I can see down to Smith Rock. Uh, Just a beautiful day. Trees are now in bloom. I think we finally hit spring. I don't know. We go back and forth. Yesterday was uh, bad again, and now today is good. I don't know. Anyways. Anyways. Welcome back. We are uh, going through our Psalms series uh, that I've entitled Good, and these are all just based on songs that uh, I used to sing or that uh, are uh, new songs today that are based on Psalms. And so when we sing those songs, you know, we are singing words directly from Scripture. It's pretty amazing stuff. So today I want to talk a little bit about barbecue. Um, we're going to have a big barbecue here as we kick off our summer uh, on Father's Day coming up next month. And uh we knew that this would never work with women to say, hey, on Mother's Day, we want you guys to uh cook. But you know, you, you make it a competition and you bring in grills and you, you can get the dads involved. And so hopefully we're going to get a lot of dads coming on Father's Day ready to bring their Traegers or whatever, their grills to, to grill some pork or beef or chicken or some side dishes or whatever. I love barbecue. Barbecues are one of those things where you you smell a barbecue in your neighborhood, and you, you almost want to just uh, let your nose lead you. you. You follow your nose, and you find the place, and hopefully you find some people with um, generous hearts that want to share with you. Uh, my, my mom loved the aroma of pipes, and so I remember any time we were in the mall when I was growing up, and we would smell that pipe smell. She would just want to find the person and just follow them down the, the aisles that they would be in. So what does that have to do with Psalm 5? Well, we'll get into that. But Psalm 5 is an interesting psalm to study. The, the things of this world that are brought up in this psalm, um as the psalmist is crying out to God, um sometimes those things that the, the psalmist is bringing up uh, has a, have a tendency to stink. Injustice where the bad guys win doesn't seem fair. Sometimes we even use the phrase, well, that stinks. So it'd be not like a barbecue where it draws you in. It's actually a smell that when you see the state of the world, it kind of draws you, it repels you, right? And yet, as you proceed through the psalm, as we're going to do it, it will become clear that there actually is an attitude. There is a course of action that actually can change how that aroma is perceived, Rather than being something that uh, drives you away, it actually draws you near to God. If you have this attitude, if you have this course of action. Now, maybe you're listening today or you have people in your life that if they did hear this today, they they would you'd call yourself a skeptic. They would call themselves a skeptic when it comes to faith. Um, as you listen to me, you might be wrestling with the question that, well, if God is so good, and you've entitled this series Good, well, then why does he allow evil? Why does he allow suffering and pain to exist? That question is a real question. I hear it a lot. But even as a pastor, by the way, I'm not offended. I'm rarely offended. The only time I get upset is when there is the person who asks has no intention of actually searching for a real answer. They They just... They have the question and they allow that question to drive themselves away from God. Uh, It's a stink. It's a stench that drives them away. But if you're going to ask that question, first of all, I'm not offended. I actually think it's a great question to ask. It's a question that the Bible itself wrestles with from time to time. You got to know you're not the only one that has that question. You're not the only one in the history of the world to have that question. And so my question to you, if you are questioning, if God is good, why does he allow evil? Do you really want to seek understanding? Or are you content to let the question itself be sufficient to drive you away from God? You know, a few hundred years ago, our culture, our Western world passed into an age of enlightenment where reason and critique ruled the day. Okay. And as people began to question things rationally, there arose uh, a lot of people who began uh, to be antagonistic towards faith. If they couldn't explain it through science, through experiment, then it was something that they, they would toss out. And as those critics arose, though, some great thinkers arose as well. Some great thinkers who still believed in God, great thinkers like Thomas Aquinas, and then more modern times, C.S. Lewis. These are men and women of faith who they sought to make a rational defense of the goodness of God in the face of evil because, yes, they saw the face of evil. They saw a world of evil, the problem of evil, but they also maintained their faith in God. So they came up with this study, this practice of uh, defending their faith. It's called apologetics, which was just a fancy way of saying, uh, yeah, It doesn't make sense at times, and we're trying to make sense of it all, even though it's difficult, but we believe that God still exists, that God is good, and we're trying to figure some stuff out. So today, if you are listening and you're a skeptic, I I would challenge you to be as intellectually honest with your doubts as you have about your faith, okay? I, I would ask that you don't allow the question about the, the problem of evil to become a stench that drives you away from faith, but that you would actually be open to reading Thomas Aquinas, to reading C.S. Lewis, to read what these men and women of faith, people who have the same questions that you have, to, to read their conclusions, to read their process of, of um, intellectually trying to get their minds around it. Because they eventually got to a place in their life when the aroma didn't repel them. It actually drew them into a relationship with God. And I, I would just ask that you would be intellectually honest enough to maybe allow that to happen to you. But he, here's, here's the difference, though. Keep this in mind. These people did not just put their minds to work, okay, they were trying to understand the problem of pain and evil. They also invested their hearts, Okay. In other words, they did argue rationally, and they have some great writings, by the way. But they also dedicated themselves to prayer to actually keep um, uh, communication channels open with God. That's what Psalm 5 is about. Okay, It's not just about seeing the problems in this world and letting them be a stench to drive them away from God. It's a way to see what's going on in this world and then to open up the channels of communication, not to just put your mind to work, but to put your heart to work and to dedicate yourself to communicate in prayer with God. Because you can have some great arguments in the debate about evil in light of a good God, but then have a heart that just refuses to open yourself up to have a relationship with that God and to bow in submission. In other words, you can know about God, okay? And if you spend any time watching videos from armchair theologians who want to pick apart uh, faith, and they have for centuries and centuries, you'll see that many strive to know about God, but very few want to put in the time to actually know God himself. They'll engage their minds, but they won't engage their hearts. And I believe that that is the thing that makes the difference, because prayer is critical, to this whole understanding because in prayer, we actually open up ourselves intimately with God philosophy. And in many cases, theology will speak of God in third person terms, using the pronouns, he, him, his talking about God, but prayer on the other hand, switches that and you have to begin to use second person terms, pronouns like you, God, yours, you see, it changes from a, a language of exclusion to a, to a language of connection and intimacy and, and relationship even. So back to Psalm 5, what we're going to read is essentially five stanzas, each having a unique angle, by the way, but each one also finding their core in a personal appeal to God, opening themselves up to a conversation with God about what is troubling what has proven to be a stench in this world. We're going to start out with just reading the first three verses of Psalm chapter 5. From the ESV, it says, Give ear to my words, O God. Consider my groaning, or my meditation. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. So, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and will watch, or I will look up expectantly. As we begin, you got to see the personal nature of prayer here. You you hear an appeal for God to pay attention to something that has come into my brain that I'm meditating on, that I'm crying out to you for. It's like my little sister who, when she was about three or four, would try to get my dad's attention. And his brain would be all over the place. And she'd sit on his lap. And even there, he wasn't really truly paying attention to what she was saying. And she'd say, look at me. And so he would kind of look at her. But then she would take his face in her little hands and would refocus his gaze into her face and say, no, look at all of me. That's essentially what the psalmist is saying to God. Look at me. Look at all of me. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Give ear to my words. Look at me. One thing you must know about prayer, it was never meant to be just a a detached chant of memorized words. Not that memorizing prayers are bad, but even the prayers that we memorize are meant to be said with feeling to come from our hearts because prayer needs to be personal. You know, I've got stuff that I need to bring to you, God. I, I see things in this world that, doesn't, that don't make sense to me. These are my groanings at times. These are my meditations, which is what I cannot get off of my mind. These are the things that I wake up with, and they're banging around up there, and I can't deal with them on my own. So I'm asking you, God, I'm asking you. How do you feel about these things? Can we engage in a conversation? I I need you to participate with me in in understanding these things. So prayer is personal, but it's also uh, very relational. Look at verses four and four through six. For you are a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. You know, the very first two words in this second stanza begin with the words "For you, for you. because the psalmist is realizing that relationships are actually a two-way street. If our prayers are only if our prayers only consist of me, mine, me, I, I, me, me, you know, that betrays an ignorance that prayer is supposed to be a conversation. It's supposed to be relational. In a conversation, when only one person is talking, when it's only about one person, that's not a great conversation. You could even argue it's not a conversation. It's just a diatribe or a or a sermon, if you will. The psalmist begins with acknowledging that there's this other person in relationship. God, you. He had started with a personal plea, but now he's declaring what he knows to be true about God. He brings God into it. He says, I know who you are, God. I know you're not a God who delights in wickedness. I know that evil may not dwell with you. He lists out the boastful people and the evildoers and the liars and the bloodthirsty and the deceitful, right? In other words, the psalmist is saying, I know your character, God. And I I would like to get your perspective on this because I know who you are. I know your goodness. I know you're a good God. And I know because you're good, you don't put up with wickedness. And so the psalmist is declaring to God who he is. Isn't that what worship and prayer that we incorporate into weekend services are all supposed to be about? Telling God that we know who he is. We know how good he is. We sing songs like, you're a good, good father, or I will sing of the goodness of God. All my life, you have been faithful. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. So prayer, this relationship prayer, is always grounded in praising God for who he is. You're bringing him into the picture because of who he is. So prayer is personal. It's relational. But now, once we focus in on who God is, we have to come to the reality of who we are in light of who he is. In other words, prayer is also very humble. Check out the next stanza, verses 7 and 8. But I, the psalmist says, through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. So lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies, and make your way straight before me. Do you see that this is actually the gospel? This is the gospel made very clear in the Old Testament. Though we have just seen that God does not abide wickedness, liars, boastful, all of that. Here's the deal. That's me. That's me. I, I'm a liar. I I boast. I I am wicked. I don't. I'm not perfect. So God does not abide people like me. That's me. And by the way, that's you as well. In fact, that's all of humanity. In comparison to a holy and a righteous God, we are wicked. And I know it's so easy for us to look at other people and say they're wicked and not be honest about our own shortcomings. But it's true. And it's a problem when you read about the character of God because we should not be allowed in. But, but... (laughs) But I, that's how verse 7 begins, but I, and by the way, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, your chesed, I, through the abundance of your chesed, I will enter. Isn't that the gospel? The, the, The knowledge that God is righteous and holy and that we are sinful and that he cannot abide wickedness in his presence? To know that the wages of our sin is separation, eternal separation from our Creator. And yet, through chesed, the abundance of chesed, His loving kindness, I can enter into His house. And as I do, I would do well to come in in humility, with a humble heart, knowing that I don't deserve to come in. It is only by His grace and His love, His loving kindness, His chesed, that I can. And that's the gospel. And by the way, that's what makes our gospel distinct from any other religious system in history. Because you, you do a study on other religions, you'll see that for a person to enter into their deity's presence, to be accepted by them, they have to obey. They have to obey the rigid religious rules. Otherwise, they cannot be accepted. In other words, in every other religion, righteousness is it leads to acceptance. Obedience has to be there first, and then you are accepted. But the gospel of Jesus Christ turns it on its head, turns it upside down. Because what we read of in the Bible is that acceptance, God's grace, his acceptance of us into his presence will lead to our righteousness. To, it will lead us to obey. It will lead us into the right kind of living. See, the Bible has this truth. God is willing to accept you based on what Jesus did, based on the cross. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, and God gave his son for us as a demonstration of his steadfast love, not based on anything we did. That was a choice that he made. And because of his loving kindness, God invites us into a relationship with himself. And that relationship is so powerful That it will lead us into paths of righteousness as we submit more and more of our life to Him. As as it says there in verse 8 of Psalm chapter 5. The psalmist declares that the righteousness that we may one day walk in, God is the one who leads us into that righteousness. We, We don't get there on our own. God leads us. But we must have humility in our hearts in order to do that. We must be willing to follow Him into those straight paths transforming us to be people who reflect his righteousness. So prayer is personal, it's relational, it's humble. Now the next stanza makes a shift because it's no longer about God. It's no longer even about me. It's about other people. And, and that's really where we began, that there's something going on in this world about other people that the psalmist needs to connect with God about. And in this way, What we see is that prayer also needs to be about trust. It it needs to be personal. It needs to be relational. It needs to be humble. But it also needs to be full of trust. Look at verses 9 and 10. Talking about them. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Okay, here is something that the psalmist is is really declaring. He's saying, I get it, God. I know how you feel about these people. There are people in this world who are truly evil, who will not bow to you. So are you going to do something about them? I, I know how you feel about them, so can we do something about them? Now, that, there's a trust right there because I'm sure that the psalmist would want to do something about it himself in his own timing, in his own way. And yet here he's bringing it to God and says, okay, God, you need to, you, you need to do something about them because they have rebelled against you. Make them bear their guilt, oh God. There, there's something interesting about people who actually don't believe in God. Even the people who don't believe in God have these philosophies about morality. And, and what's, what's amazing to me is that they are really talking about faith in God without wanting to talk about faith in God. We see this, by the way, in our modern experience of cancel culture. Cancel culture is really a blatant testimony that, that shows that people actually do believe in a higher power, though they will not uh, admit it openly. Because see, in cancel culture, people look at other people and they point out what is wrong with those people or what what was wrong at some point with them, and they cancel them. They say, you you no longer have validity because, well, I'm better than you. I have a higher moral standard than you. And so there's this constant condemnation uh, in our world where people get outraged at what other people do or the attitudes that other people have. And there is definitely a right and a wrong in their brains, which is ironic. See, they've they they they've got this mantra saying, well, you can't judge me. You can't judge me for what I'm doing, but then I'm going to turn right around and judge you because you don't agree with me. You, you see, that betrays something. There was a New York University professor who was not a Christian at all, but he Uh, He was a sociologist. He began to look at how we do these kinds of things, how we do stand in judgment of other people and condemnation of other people who don't agree with us. And and he he came up with this term called the righteous mind. Now, again, he, he wasn't a Christian. But what he was saying as a social psychologist was that as he studied people, as they interacted in society, he sees that people are prone to see this world through categories of right and wrong. It's something that everybody does, even people who don't believe in God. They have this understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And so, you know, conservatives think liberals are wrong. Liberals think conservatives are wrong. But here's what the the, the professor asked. Based on what? You, You say this is right, this is wrong. Based on what? Well, he came up with the idea that it's based on a personal framework. So, in other words, if I deem something is wrong, then I will live like it is wrong. And so we descend into a moral relativism. The only way, though, to know what really is right and what really is wrong, what really is good and what really is bad, is a trust that we express to God. We trust that there is actually a higher being who makes those objective determinations See, because God exists, we can trust Him. Even though we're limited in our sight and understanding, we can trust that He is good. We can trust that He knows what's going on, and we can trust that there really is an objective sense of morality, and that one day there will be justice. Yes, evil exists, but so does God. And so evil exists, but it's not up to me to do anything about it. It's up to me to trust that God knows what he's doing. That God is good, and as much as we hate evil, God hates it more. So I must trust that one day he's going to do something about it. He's going to make these people bear their guilt. He's going to allow them to fall by their own counsels one day. So prayer Even when I'm talking about the things that stink in this world, prayer allows me to trust God that he understands and he knows what he's doing and he will do the right thing one day. And then finally we get to the last stanza, verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So this psalm closes by holding out the promise that God is at work. He is protecting those who are on his side, who are in his family. The psalmist says, you know, God, what I want you to do? Either judge the evil that men do or save them from the evil and make them righteous. You see, to take refuge in God requires that we acknowledge that it is in Him and in Him alone that refuge can be taken. The answers are going to be in a relationship with Him, which requires, again, submission and humility. It requires repentance. It requires a turning of our hearts back to the desire to follow Him. And when that happens, the righteousness of Jesus is poured out on us like I've Quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21 many times in these last several months. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. Why is that so important? Because the psalmist says, you bless the righteous. But again, scripture says no one is righteous. It says that all of our righteous acts in comparison with the holiness of God are merely dirty rags. So, When the psalmist is asking God to bless the righteous, what is he talking about? He's not talking about those who are sinless, who are righteous in and of themselves, but he's talking about those who have run to him as their refuge and have let their lives be a worship service to him. And as we come to him in trust, in humility, in repentance, with a personal desire to have a relationship with him, that's When he imbues us with his righteousness, he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And then he blesses the righteous. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to continue to become like him, right? His plan is still for us to be like Jesus, to reflect his character. Yes, he invited people who were sinners to eat with him but his desire was for them to eventually change because of they were hanging out with because of who they were hanging out with they were hanging out with him they needed to begin to reflect his character they needed to change that's always been his plan even before the law god wanted to relate to adam and to enoch and to noah and to abraham through faith so that they would become more and more like him that he would put his law on their hearts and that they would in obedience, just worship him with their lives and keeping in step with him. And in doing so, God says, I will protect you. I will protect you against the eternal consequences of your sin. I will make you righteous. My righteousness, God says, will be poured out on you, so it will change you. So as we walk in righteousness, we begin to bear the fruit that God designed us to bear. And in that is the blessing of God. He doesn't bless us necessarily with money or power or prestige or health and wealth he blesses us with his favor with his presence with a renewed relationship and that allows me then to live in integrity and to enjoy peace and the lasting kind of joy that is not dependent upon the circumstances of my life but in the confidence of knowing who I am in him it depends upon then or it leads me into worship and in worship of god i am blessed. So Psalm 5 is really about a different kind of aroma, isn't it? it it's about coming into a right perspective of of reality. And that's actually a, a good thing. It's a good thing that God does not automatically rid this world of wickedness because, well, that would have been me. And so for him to forbear, well, that's that's good news for me. I'm glad that God doesn't automatically just get rid of sinful people because I'm one of them. Rather, Psalm 5 is about the role of grace in my life. And so that aroma, it does not repel me. It actually brings me, draws me closer in. Because I've heard the invitation of Jesus to come. And I've found forgiveness in his love. And I see my broken relationship with God now renewed. And so I can celebrate what he is doing in me so that I can live the blessed life of integrity and victory over sin. And that is a pleasant aroma like a barbecue or a pipe that draws us in. And not only for us to be drawn in, but again, as we have spoken these last several weeks, we get drawn in and that aroma begins to permeate us so that we can then serve as a pleasant aroma to this world as well. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He talks about barbecues, I think. He says, thanks be to God, who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession always. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are not going to be saved, who are perishing. To one, we're a fragrance from death to death for those who are perishing. We will remind them that uh, this this is it can lead to death it can repel them uh, throw them away from God but to the other it will be a fragrance from life to life you see the beautiful aroma of righteousness will permeate you and I when we trust in God when we can come to him in prayer with uh, with With relationship and and wanting his perspective on things to to in humility recognize that we could have been condemned, but because of his grace we now stand as righteous and then the the way that God then uses us is so that that aroma that we have come into contact with now stays with us, and that aroma will seep out of us and hopefully draw other people into the barbecue as well see. The problem of evil can sometimes be overcome by our understanding of our own need for grace and by our willingness to let the gospel that saved us lead us into significant interactions with other people. You want to do something about the the, the evil in this world? Then be a good smell and let your connection with God be the aroma that draws people in so that they can be infused as well with the beauty of the aroma of the gospel that can permeate into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into our state, into our nation, into our world. Well, that's uh, what we've got going on this week. I uh, hope that you have a great Mother's Day. That's coming up this Sunday as well. We're going to be focusing in on uh, thanking God for our mothers and the special ladies in our life. And so uh, hopefully uh, that's something that you can um, celebrate as well this weekend. Thank you uh, to my crew, to Lisa and to, um, to uh, Steve. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for putting this online and making it uh, available to so many people. And thank you for listening in. Uh, Hope to see you next week.